Welcome to episode 12 of the Katie Halper Show. We just want to give you a really exciting heads up that on October 28th, we'll be talking to author Ta-Nehisi Coates, national correspondent for The Atlantic, the author of Between the World and Me and The Beautiful Struggle, and the writer who Toni Morrison has compared to James Baldwin. And another guest we're really excited to announce who will be joining us this month is comedian Judah Friedlander. So make sure you check it out. Coming up at the 6 p.m. hour will be the Katie Halper Show. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. We're here every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. on WBAI. That's WBAI.org or 99.5 FM. And I'm here as usual with my co-pilots. I got one co-pilot named Gabe Pacheco, hilarious comedian, Gabe Pacheco. Howdy, it's me. It's Gabe Pacheco. How's Katie t- Halper, I'm feeling pretty good. Good. You're looking pretty good. Oh, thank you very much. He's wearing a tank top, everyone. That's right. Camouflage tank top. Camouflage tank top. I had no idea he was here. Keeping it classy. I thought yeah. he was just arms and a head, and then, like, his torso I couldn't see. Completely disappeared into the uh, drywall <laughs> backdrop. Into the white drywall, because camouflage and white, they mm-hmm. go together like two birds of a feather. And, of course, on the engineering... Uh, Gamelon, the engineering Gamelon. We have Reggie Johnson. What is a Gamelon? It's you know, don't you? It's some like a like Polyn- a, uh, Indonesian. Did you just say po- Polynesian? Indonesian? Okay, are you gonna Indonesian, are you gonna Indonesian shame me? I want all of our listeners to Google South, Gamelon. South Asian shaming. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. Mm. No, but they definitely had one at Bard College. And they definitely had one at Wesleyan yeah. Wesleyan University. All liberal arts colleges. Asadi. No Although Wesleyan's technically university, but it is small. Um, not to uni shame you, but we have a great show coming up today. So excited. Oh, hold up. Shout yeah. outs to Reg, man. How oh you God, doing, yeah. Reg? Romance hey, it out. What's up? Romance. What's up? Romance. I'm loving the new button down. Loving the new button down. You got a haircut, Reggie? You got a haircut? No, no. no. He's talking about I, my No, shirt. I understand that. I was just... I had a haircut Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Ago. We need okay. to throw that t-shirt on Instagram, though, after That's pretty really? good. It's yeah. very... It really... uh, I don't know. What is it? American... Uh, I don't know. It could be... I don't know. It could be t- Southwestern. Tex-Mex. It could be... Yeah, it could be... New New Adobe... Like Taos. Taos. Yeah. Indigenous. Taosian, Taosian, if you will. Yeah. Like um, you're at the Georgia Indigenous influence. Okay. So we have such a great show, though, guys. I just want to walk our listeners through it. We got Robert Mirapol, who is the founder and former ex- executive director of the Rosenberg Fund, Fund for Children. He's also one of the two sons of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were executed in 1953 in the United States. This Monday would have been the 100th birthday of his mother, the Ethel. The centennial. The centennial of the birth of Ethel Rosenberg. And we'll talk about this more later, but she was just used to try to lever her husband into confessing. They knew that she hadn't done what they accused her of doing, and they executed her anyway. Mm, so uh, an innocent person being executed by the U.S. government? I know. Unheard of. I know, unheard of. It never happens here in but this country. But in this case, what... what kind of shocked people was it wasn't even there wasn't murder it was allegations of espionage and so it was the first time ever that people were executed for espionage during peacetime in the united states then we'll be joined live in studio by brian collinsworth who's the former executive director of universities allied for essential medicines an international organization of medical and law students working to make treatments discovered at universities more affordable in the developing world, and we're going to be talking to him about that lovely chap, Martin Shkreli. Don't know if you heard about this. Mm-hmm. He's the lovely guy who raised the price of life-saving medicine yeah. from thirteen fifty per pill to seven hundred dollars per pill. What totally a prince of a guy! 
capitalism at its best. What do we call that? That's a medical innovation? That's not yeah. price gouging? It's price gouging dressed as medical innovation. And I actually wrote, I'm going to share some of his tweets because this guy, he shut, he made his Twitter feed private, but luckily Katie Halper took a bunch of screenshots. We're going to share some of those. Oh. And then we'll be joined by Rodrigo Hardon, a documentary photographer from Mexico. And he has a project that he's going to be putting on display at Union Docs this Friday in Brooklyn. But first, of course, as usual, we have to do some headlines. And today is Buy Visibility Day. Did you guys know that? Buy no. Visibility Day? Break it down. I don't okay. even know what that means. Buy Visibility Day is for bisexuality. And it's basically a day that, that says bisexuality is real. It's not just something that girls do on Girls Gone Wild. <laughs> and that it's not just men who are gay saying that they're bisexual. So it's a legitimate uh, category. It's a category legitimate category and orientation. Yeah. Right, exactly. But it's celebrated every... Every September 23rd since 1999. Pretty recent. Pretty recent. You know, I want to share a little something. I learned a lot about the bisexual stigma through the show The L Word. Great show, the Showtime series. Oh, yeah. Um, big fan of it. Yeah. Really? Yeah. No, I know. Seriously. I was too. Because Seriously. you know what that show proved? It proved that the LGBT world needs crappy yet addictive television just as much as the straight world does, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what equality is about. One of the few out lesbians on the show in real life, Aisha Haley, who used to date Katie Lang, she ironically played the only avowed bisexual character on the show, Alice Pacheski. And she said this about her what she learned from playing this bisexual character. I've really come to learn that bisexuality is a true legitimate sexual orientation. It's not about crossing over from straight to gay, which is an idea that Alice has to argue a lot with her friends. They all want her to stay in their camp, but Alice is looking for love, and she literally doesn't care if it ends up being with a man or a woman. I think that's beautiful. So thank you, Laisha. Hey. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here's the thing. To honor Bi Visibility Day, we're going to share a list of some bi people you may not have known were bi. Let's call it the best bi. <sighs> the best bi list, okay? Here's BBL. Channel. BBL, exactly. Hans Christian Anderson. Oh, I love The Little Mermaid. Love The Little Mermaid. He was by Billy mm. Joe Armstrong. Did you know that? From Green Day? Really? Wait, Hans Christian yeah. Anderson, what does he do? He makes music? No, he he was a writer. He, he was, was a writer. A, he wrote, he wrote uh, the little, 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 little Mermaid, yeah, and Thumbelina. And Thumbelina, And right. um, the, Danny Kaye, who was either gay or bi, unclear, uh, played him, ironically, coming full Full sexual spectrum, yeah. uh, full non-straight, let's say, circle. Got it. Babur, do you know Babur, the Mughal emperor and founder of the Mughal Empire and in Indian subcontinent? He, it's true. The rumors are true. He was indeed by. Okay, you heard those rumors, right? I, around yeah, around the Mughal Empire, all over now. the Twitter sphere. Yeah. Joan Baez. Mm -hmm. I knew that. That oh. I knew. Josephine Baker. Yep, I knew that. Alan one too. Cumming. Now, Alan Cumming, everyone thinks I think is gay. Nightcrawler, but he's by. Really? He's an yeah. X-Men. Marlon Brando. Mm -hmm. Really? Yep. Yeah. Megan Mullally, who plays... Uh, From a... Uh, Will and Grace. Will and Grace, yeah. right. She's not, and she says, I consider myself bisexual, and my philosophy is everyone innately is. Farley Granger from Strangers on a Train, mm. the Hitchcock movie. Mm. Daphne du Maurier, who wrote Rebecca. Isidore okay. Duncan, the dancer. Mm. Cary Grant. Christopher Hitchens. The comedian Mary Lynn Rakshub, is that how you say her name? She's bi and she might have a crush on Megan Fox, which just really uh, makes me not trust her taste uh, at all. Tallulah Bankhead, she had affairs with lots of women of her time. She never called herself a bisexual, but she described herself as 
ambisextrous. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good, right? And then like Fergie, people like that, they're whatever. Yeah, we all know yeah, that. Yeah, That's yeah, not surprising. Right. But a lot of royalty and a lot of porn stars are on the list of bi people. But I gave you the best buys. Yeah. I don't want to like fetishize bi people as angels. They're good and bad, just like every other person, uh, group of people, right? So here's some bad ones. Snooki mm-hmm. yeah. and Prince Philip of Hesse, who was apparently the Nazi governor of Hesse Kasseland interior designer. Don't don't know if that's one job description or or two job descriptions. Like but he, like his real passion was interior design. Yeah, but, but he he, was, he moonlit. Uh, he moonlit. Is that how you say? Yeah, it? Moonlighted as a, as a dictator. As a Nazi. Got it. Nazi governor. Yeah. Right. Um. Then what else? Oh, we have another great story for you guys. You, you guys may have heard of the the Pope. Not by. Not by that. Well, we don't know yet. I don't know. I don't want to close that door. <laughs> Could be. We're not putting him on the list officially. Right. He's not officially on that list. Right. But he is in town. Oh. Yes, he is. Yeah. What, Gabe? No, just that's just surprising. Good news. Good news. And you know, guess who likes? Guess who likes the Pope? Who likes the Pope? Katie Halper. Okay. Guess who else likes the Pope? Who? who Another else? progressive Jew who I often compare myself to. Say his name. Bernie Sanders. What? Oh, yes. that's right. That's he right. said right. he's dealing with issues that very few people in Congress are prepared to deal with. And he says his, his stance on climate change has been hugely important. That's true. It is a profound statement, which I see already having a significant impact on the debate. That's pretty exciting. Now, of course, Bernie is a Jew, like myself, right. another right. socialist Jew. Right. But you know who doesn't like the Pope so much? Who? Chris Christie. Oh. In fact, we're going to play you a little a little snippet of what Chris Christie said about his thoughts on the Pope. He was asked by Jack Tapper what he thought of the Pope going to Cuba and also working on the reconciliation between Cuba and the United States, the rapprochement, if you will. So we have a little clip we're going to play. This was Sunday on CNN with Jack Tapper. I just think the Pope was wrong. The, the, the fact is that um, his infallibility is on religious matters, not on political ones. Um, and the fact is that for me, um, I just believe that when you have a government that is harboring fugitives, murdering fugitives, like Joanne Chesimar, who murdered a state policeman in New Jersey in cold blood, was broken out of prison and has been harbored for the last 40 plus years by a Cuban government that has paid her and held her up as a hero, that this president could extend um, diplomatic relations with that country without getting her returned so that she can serve the prison sentence that she was sentenced to by a jury of her peers in New Jersey is outrageous. And so I, I just happen to disagree with the Pope on this one. You know what I like about Chris Christie? He gets right to the point. He does. He's very, he does not mince his words. Okay, so just to break that down, Chris Christie is basically saying that diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Cuba are not justified because of the status of one woman from New Jersey. So we should clearly, the, the, the world should re- revolve around New Jersey. It is. It's, New Jersey is the nexus of the universe. It is. It's the Vatican. It's the Vatican 2.0. And I like the way he says, oh, no, he's just infallible on religious stuff, like not political stuff. He's totally wrong. Like, wow, God, way to like really compartmentalize the Pope, right? And also, if Chris Christie is such a stickler for international law, he must be so upset about Luis Posada Carriles. Do you guys know who he is? He's the uh, terrorist being harbored by the United States. This guy literally blew up a Cuban plane in the 70s. As the pilots yelled, shut the door, the plane crashed off the coast of Barbados. At that point, the deadliest airline bombing ever in the Western Hemisphere. For Cuba, it was a national catastrophe. Within days, 
Fidel Castro pinned the blame on the United States. At the State Department, Henry Kissinger came to the cameras to issue a blanket denial, saying, I can state categorically no one in contact with the American government has had anything to do with the bombing. Several of the declassified documents suggest that is not true. On June 22, 1976, a secret CIA memo titled Possible Plans of Cuban Exile Extremists to Blow Up a Cuban Airliner was sent to top officials at the White House, State Department, FBI, Pentagon, and the FAA. The memo warned that Cuban exiles may attempt to carry bombs aboard a Cubana airliner. A little over three months later, anti-Castro exiles did just that, and almost immediately, evidence started to point to the CIA's old agent, Luis Posada. A then-secret FBI cable says that on October 7th, the day after the plane went down, a source all but admitted Posada and an associate engineered the bombing. Another document outlines the contacts between Hernan Ricardo, one of those who actually carried the bombs onto the plane, and an FBI agent working at the U.S. Embassy in Venezuela. The agent helped Ricardo get a U.S. visa just five days before the bombing. We did not extradite him to Venezuela. If, if Chris Christie thinks Asada Shakur, that's Joanne Chesimard's new name, if he thinks that she's a, a threat, Luis Posada Carriles killed 70-something people. Amazing. And he admitted to taking part in other bombings, and the fact that he's here must really upset. And where's he living now? Miami, of course. Okay. Obvious, yeah. Okay. So Chris Christie must be so upset about that, too. Then one more thing I want to share. You guys enjoyed the, the Republican debates? Wow. What a mess. I mean, a beautiful mess, right? So here's what was interesting. You know how they asked them what woman should go on the $10 bill? Jeb Bush said Margaret Thatcher. Um, but uh, Rubio and Cruz said Rosa Parks. And Donald Trump kind of divided. He was torn. He couldn't decide between his daughter and Rosa Parks. I mean, there, there's a fine line between the two of them. I'm, I'm torn, too. I don't wow. know who's more impressive, who's done uh, more for the world. But here's what's interesting. Ready? You know how the Republicans have also recently voted to mm -hmm. defund Planned Parenthood? Mm -hmm. Guess who was on the National Board of Planned Parenthood? Who? Rosa Parks. Really? Yes. So their hero, Rosa, I don't know how they can reconcile Down the two things. Down with the woman's right to choose. Yes. that's Or evil is what they would call well, Rosa, her. Rosa has always been badass. Yeah, but they pretend to like her. So I don't yeah. know how they reconcile that. Well, was she just not very smart? Was she right about everything and justice and freedom and equality and principle, except on that one issue of reproductive choice? They didn't look further into the Wikipedia it's true. biography. And remember, the Republicans have done a lot of critical thinking about Rosa Parks because uh, Rents Priebus attributed, attributed ending racism to Rosa Parks. Remember on her birthday? Oh, yeah, that's right. Happy yeah, birthday. Right. She ended racism. Her, on public transportation. <laughs> yes. Uh, fit, yes, exactly. So we are going to bring in our next guest. So excited to speak to him. Robert Mirapol is the founder and former executive director of the Rosenberg Fund for Children. He is the younger son of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, who the U.S. government executed in 1953 for conspiring to steal the secrets of the atomic bomb. Ladies and gentlemen, a good evening to you. Four times today, Adam Spies, Julius, and Ethel Rosenberg appealed their sentence of death, and four times they were unsuccessful. They will be executed tonight, probably within the next half hour, the first husband and wife to die in the electric chair. Inside the stone walls of Sing Sing Prison, the Rosenbergs wait all day for word of their fate. 
It's now more than two years since they were first sentenced to die for organizing atomic espionage for Russia. Rabbi Irving Kozlow, a prison chaplain, goes in. He will not leave until after the execution, which is being held before sundown because the setting of the sun this Friday marks the beginning of the Holy Sabbath in the Jewish calendar. A matron, Mamie Creighton, comes out after seeing Ethel Rosenberg. She says the woman refuses to believe she's going to die, insists she is innocent. The hours pass slowly. Julius Rosenberg, now 35, his wife Ethel, now 37, married 14 years in one day, parents of two boys, tonight dined on hard-boiled eggs, macaroni salad, and tea. There was no time for the usual last meal. In the 1970s, Robert and his brother Michael, through extensive legal suits, forced the FBI and CIA to release 300,000 previously secret documents about their parents, which reveal a very different story than the official story the government put forward. Robert is an activist, lawyer, and founder, and until 2013, executive director of the Rosenberg Fund for Children, which provides special educational, artistic, and social support to the children of persecuted, prosecuted, and or jailed political activists. Robert is also an author of We Are Your Sons, which he wrote with his brother Michael, and he's the author of An Execution in the Family, which was published by St. Martin's Press on the 50th anniversary of his parents' executions, which examines his personal history and journey. In full disclosure, I have to admit that my counselor at summer camp, Rachel Mirapole, is his daughter. Welcome, Robert. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us, and I know how busy you are, so we really appreciate your taking the time. Well, it is a very busy time, and there are exciting events on the immediate horizon. Yes. Can you tell us, to the extent that you're allowed, can you tell us about these events? This is the first public announcement on the airwaves of any sort of this upcoming event. Um, Historic moment, everyone. We all heard a lot of news over the summer because material was released from the original grand jury testimony of the chief prosecution witness in my parents' case, David Greenglass, and what was discovered when this material was released was that the evidence that was used to convict my mother was based upon perjured testimony and that there was no credible evidence within the trial of my parents that my mother, Ethel, was guilty of anything. You and your brother wrote an op-ed that was mm-hmm. in the New York Times in August entitled mm-hmm. Exonerate Our Mother, Ethel Rosenberg. It was a demand of President Obama to do that, and the fact that the New York Times was willing to publish it indicates that this is becoming a mainstream, a relatively mainstream position. And what's on the horizon is that next Monday would have been my mother's 100th birthday. And to mark that very special occasion, members of the New York City Council will issue a proclamation in her honor on that date. Wow. Um, There are other city officials who will be issuing joint statements at the same time, and at least eight members of the immediate Mirapol family will be there on hand for this historic ceremony that will take place at 11 a.m. on the steps of City Hall. I can't talk about the contents of this proclamation because it is under wraps until it's actually released. I can say that I am pleased with it. Uh, and this is the culmination of a lot of work, and it's just, it's just wonderful. I'm, I'm just so pleased that it's happening. 
Great. In the op-ed that you wrote with your brother, Michael, you wrote, Our mother was not a spy. The government held her life hostage to coerce our father to talk. And when that failed, it extracted false statements to secure her wrongful execution. The apparent rationale for such action, that national security demanded it during a time of international crisis, has disturbing implications in post-9-11 America. It is never too late to correct an egregious injustice. We call on the government to formally exonerate Ethel Rosenberg. So you both have said that your father was not guilty of the crime for which he was executed and that your mother was not guilty at all. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, um, first of all, I mean, both the the reason my parents' trial was the most sensational trial of the McCarthy period was because essentially they were charged with giving our arch enemy, the Soviet Union, the means to destroy us all. And that statement is 100% false. But it turns out that the reason that they could create this kind of false scenario is through a bait-and-switch, a kind of old-style deception. My father and a group of young people at the start of World War II, decide, and my father had bad eyesight, he couldn't join the army, decided that they were going to do what they could to help the Soviet Union defeat Hitler. And they had some technical connections because my father was an electrical engineer and he knew people who were in graduate school in the sciences. And they did what they could to funnel military industrial information to the Soviet Union during the 1940s. And the government took that because my father was not a top-notch scientist, but rather the recruiter, the person who got others involved, they took that because they knew if they could make him cooperate, they could get a lot of names. It wasn't a question of quality. It wasn't the secret of the atomic bomb. It was a bunch of idealistic amateurs trying to do what they could to help the war effort and to defeat Hitler. And then, frankly, I'm not so sure I think that's such a bad thing. But in order to demonstrate that they had solved the big problem, which was how the Soviet Union got access to our atomic information, they sort of morphed this other idealistic non-atomic effort into stealing the secret of the atomic bomb. And my father refused to cooperate. He said, no, I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to turn on my friends. I'm not going to name any names. And in order to coerce my father, they arrested my mother, and they got her a death sentence as well. And that's one of the things that capital punishment is often used as, to coerce cooperation rather than as actual punishment for a crime. So they held my mother hostage, and when my parents refused to cooperate, refused to turn on their friends, they executed her, and they executed him as well. And the evidence against my mother, the evidence indicates that she was not guilty of spying at all. Now, the charge against my parents was conspiracy to commit espionage. And if if it's true, that means they were involved in some sort of secret conspiracy. Well, it's very hard to prove that somebody was not involved in a secret conspiracy. After all, if it's secret, how do you know? So it's impossible for me to prove my mother's innocence, but we can prove that there was no credible evidence 
presented against her, and we can also prove that she was not a spy. And an assistant attorney general at the time actually said to the FBI there was insufficient evidence, quote, unquote, insufficient evidence against her, but that she could be used as, quote, a lever against her husband, end quote. It's that kind of manipulation by governmental authorities that we have to be concerned about because that kind of manipulation can be used against any of us. And what we find is that those people gathering snippets of 50-year-old KGB files and a statement here and a statement there, those people who are saying, oh, well, Ethel must have known about it, Ethel must have somehow helped, and we can point to this quote from this person in order to show that, they're, those folks, they're not concerned about governmental power. They're not concerned about how this can be used against us. They want to transform the discussion into whether Ethel had some level of culpability. And when you put that up against the grand jury transcripts, sworn statements taken contemporaneously that we can know exactly what the prosecution witnesses said and when they said it and that they said it under oath, and then we can demonstrate when this contradicts what they said at the trial that they were lying when you put the quality of evidence we have against the quality of evidence they have, and when you put the fact that they're trying to show that some woman from the Lower East Side of Manhattan may have had something to do with a secret conspiracy up against government manipulation that threatens us all, you see the difference between what we're saying and what our opponents are claiming. And there's a very moving letter that your mother wrote to you and Michael on the day of her execution. I wanted to read some of that, if that's okay. Sure. Um, she says, Dearest sweethearts, my most precious children, only this morning it looked like we might be together again after all. Now that this cannot be, I want so much for you to know all that I've come to know. Unfortunately, I may write only a few simple words. The rest your own lives must teach you, even as mine taught me. At first, of course, you will grieve bitterly for us, but you will not grieve alone. That is our consolation, and it must eventually be yours. Eventually, too, you must come to believe that life is worth the living. Be comforted that even now, with the end of our slowly approaching, that we know this with the conviction that defeats the executioner. Your lives must teach you, too, that good cannot flourish in the midst of evil, that freedom and all the things that go to make up a truly satisfying and worthwhile life must sometimes be purchased very dearly. We wish we might have had the tr this part. It's very hard for me to read because it's very sad. Um, we wish we might have had the tremendous joy. Sorry. Um, the first time crying on air. Okay. We wish we might have had the tremendous joy and gratification of living our lives out with you. Your daddy, who is with me in the last momentous hour, sends his heart and all the love that is in it for his dearest boys. We press you close and kiss you with all our strength, lovingly, Daddy and Mommy. When did you hear that for the first time or read that for the first time? You know, I don't even remember. I probably as a teenager because growing up, I grew up in a household where this material was available to me. Abel and Ann Mirapola, my adoptive parents, were very wise they left all this material on a bottom shelf on a living room bookshelf and never mentioned anything to me about it, probably knowing that as a teenager, sooner or later, I would discover it and look through it. 
and that's what I did. So probably as a 15 or 16-year-old in high school is when they encountered that. And of course, now whenever I hear that letter, I think of the Rosenberg Fund for Children and all the major events that we have done, and we often feature readings of that letter. And when I hear you reading it, I hear Eve Ensler's voice reading it and Susan Sarandon's voice reading it and other people who have performed on our behalf. And it's, of course, very moving. Also, that idea that others will continue, that there'll be a community of support is something that has has sort of been a a guiding light for me and has helped me. I would love to have you back on. Maybe we can see you on Monday. I definitely am going to go to the event. Can you give the details once more about the event it's on Monday 11 for your mother? a.m. on the steps of City Hall. This will be a historic occasion honoring my mother, Ethel Rosenberg, on her 100th birthday. Is there anything you want listeners to know about your mother that you feel has not been communicated or isn't known by the public? All I can say is that she she was an extraordinary person. In, I, I was too young to really know her, and I regret that. But She graduated high school at the age of 15. She led a strike in the garment district at at the age of 19. She was actually fired for helping to lead that strike and then won one of the very first cases for the newly created NLRB, um, National Labor Labor Relations Board. So all of that stuff, the stuff that she did before she was arrested, is largely unknown but it's something that people should know about her. Well, thank you so much. And anything you want to tell us about Abel Maripol, who adopted you and your brother and wrote the anti-lynching poem, Strange Fruit, which was, of course, immortalized by Billie Holiday. Well, and I I would say that he wrote both the poem and the music. And the music. Uh, Billie Holiday popularized it. And really, that's what I would want to say about Abel Maripol, that, you know, the man who hated lynching so much that he wrote that song ended up adopting the children of people he would consider having suffered a legal lynching. Well, thank you so much, and we will go on Monday, and again, would love to talk to you more and have you back on the show. Okay, I look forward to seeing you on Monday and all your listeners. Great. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Robert Mirapol, the founder and former executive director of the Rosenberg Fund for Children. We're going to play a bit of Strange Fruit which was written by the man who would adopt the children of the Rosenbergs. And let at the road Black bodies swinging In the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging From the That was Strange Fruit being sung by Billie Holiday, written by Abel Maripol, who, with his wife, adopted Robert and his brother Michael, the children of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, who were executed in 1953 by the United States. We were just speaking to Robert Maripol. This is the Katie Halper Show. You can listen to us every Wednesday from 6 to 7 on WBAI.org or 99.5 FM. Also check us out on SoundCloud and iTunes. And now we're really excited to bring on our second guest, who's actually live in the studio. Brian Collinsworth is getting a master's degree in design technology at Parsons School 
of Design in New York City. Prior to that, he served as Executive Director of Universities Allied for Essential Medicines, an international organization of medical and law students working to make treatments discovered at universities more affordable in the developing world. He's also worked on advocacy campaigns to improve the U.S. healthcare system with the New York Working Families Party and has worked on Capitol Hill as a staff member for Congresswoman Betty McCollum, a progressive congresswoman from Minnesota, Democrat, obviously, who has also been a strong voice for health care reform. So, Brian, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thanks, Katie. So we would love to talk to you a little bit about this kind of larger story that's been personified in a very particular story about Martin Shkreli price gouging, potentially life-saving medications. Can you tell us a little bit about this specific story and also the larger issue it exposes? Sure. So the current story that's really putting this in the headlines right now is the young hedge fund manager, 32, Martin Shkreli, who uh, has this company touring pharmaceuticals, though it doesn't have so far as I know, much history of doing pharmaceutical research, but he acquired this drug, Darprim, that's actually about 60 years old. It's been around forever. It's being produced in generic form, which means there are no patents or anything on it. It can be produced very cheaply. Fortunately, when he acquired it, this company is now the only one that's producing it at the moment, and he immediately increased the price by over 5,000%, so just this massive increase. So it went from $13.50 per pill to $700 per pill. That's right, just out of control. I mean, it's sort of unimaginable that you'd see that kind of price increase overnight for any other product. But this actually isn't that uncommon in the pharmaceutical industry, in the drug market, either in the U.S. or around the world. And there's a large number of factors that go into that. Probably the biggest is that uh, the cost of drugs and why drugs are priced the way they are is just really opaque. Nobody can really get to the bottom of of drug pricing to begin with. The industry uh, is obviously one of the most profitable industries in the world. And they employ a lot of lobbyists to tell the story that drug research and development is very, very expensive. That's true, but it's nowhere near as expensive as they claim. And it's not clear that the prices they charge it are, are at all related to the amount of money they're putting into research. So the best illustration of this is that most drug companies actually spend way more on marketing. All those commercials you see on TV, ask your doctor about Cialis, than they actually put back into new research and development. And actually, when you look at the, the details of new drugs coming out, the drugs that are actually the most medically innovative and that are treating conditions that we actually need new treatments for, and not things that are maybe more lifestyle conditions like balding or, at this point, erectile dysfunction, the people who are working on things like new Ebola medications or new antibiotics are actually often university researchers or people in the public sector or drug companies that are getting a lot of money from the National Institutes of Health or other public funding sources to do that research. So the public pours a lot of money into research up front. Drug companies develop these new drugs. They get patents on those drugs, which gives them a monopoly for a period of time, anywhere from five years to sometimes decades. And in that period of time, they can charge essentially whatever they want. There are other products that have patents on them that you have patent wars over, like Apple iPhones with Samsung, famously was in the news recently. But uh, despite what some people may think, nobody dies if you can't get a new iPhone. In the case of drugs, you, you have a monopoly on something that you can charge whatever you want, but if people can't get it, it really is a matter of life and death. Uh, We've seen that recently, not only in cases like this, but with cases of HIV treatments, with a new medication that came out just last year for treating hepatitis C, which is a really devastating condition. Millions of people suffer from it around the world. And this new drug was priced at $1,000 per pill. Now, in that case, it's a drug that's really, really effective. It works. It's essentially a cure for hepatitis C that we've never had before. 
you take it for 12 weeks, you're cured. But that price is still astronomical. And this is another case where that company actually did not do most of that research themselves. They paid to acquire research that was done by a university professor in labs that are subsidized by the U.S. government and by U.S. taxpayers. And then it's being sold back to us and around the world at $1,000 per pill. And what would you say to his claim, which he made, that... Yeah, I could see how it looks greedy, but I think there's a lot of altruistic properties to it. This is a disease where there hasn't been one pharmaceutical company focused on it for 70 years. We are now a company that is dedicated to the treatment and cure of toxoplasmosis. And with these new profits, we can spend all of that upside on these patients who sorely need a new drug, in my opinion. Sure. I mean, this is the claim you hear all the time. But as in many cases, there's not really any basis for assuming that this guy and his company actually know how to do that research, that they're actually going to put that money back into that kind of research and development. And Martin Shkreli came into the spotlight because the... New York Times did a profile of him on Sunday, and then the story got picked up because it's such a dramatic, as you said, such a dramatic example of the things that do happen. I mean, it was kind of poor PR on his part, right? Like, you want to be more subtle. Maybe, like, you get it to $700 per pill over the course of a couple of years as opposed to overnight. Right. So be a better brutal capitalist, Martin, next time. But he claims that this is not about greed, right? It's about really medical innovation and finding a better medication finding a better treatment. But a doctor quoted in, in the New York Times said, I certainly don't think this is one of those diseases where we've been clamoring for better therapies. That was Wendy Armstrong, professor of infectious diseases at Emory University in Atlanta. And then Dr. Judith Aberg at Mount Sinai said, this seems to be all profit driven for somebody. And I just think it's a very dangerous process. So in terms of the people who actually know about diseases and treat people with these diseases, they're not buying, no pun intended, they're not buying the, the nonprofit framing of this. That's correct, yeah. It's kind of crazy to me that so many people are defending him. I just uh -huh. saw something today, and I like say where it was without citing the person because I don't want people to click on it. But basically, someone on the Washington Post said... Prescription pricing is a strange thing to stir such rage, however. After all, Daraprim, the drug in question, is not widely used. It treats a potentially deadly condition called toxoplasmosis that primarily affects people with compromised immune systems, such as newborns and HIV patients, end quote. So basically, he's like, why should we care? It's not like it's that widely used, and it's only used on newborns and HIV patients, both of whom I'm over. I mean, I'm paraphrasing what this guy is saying, but it's it's so bizarre that someone would actually write those sentences out thinking that they were doing anything to justify that. It's almost a self-parody of evil. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's ridiculous. And I think it's actually one place where you see the split between elite opinion uh, and popular opinion in a debate like this. You know, we've seen the studies now that Congress essentially just aligns with what the 1% wants even in cases where most Americans uh, vastly disagree. And this is one place where the reforms that people are calling for, like Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton after this case was in the headlines, negotiating prescription drug prices. You know, we're going to negotiate that down like pretty much every other developed country in the world does. Right. Vast majority of both Democrats and Republicans and everybody else in the country supports that. But if you talk to an elite on The Washington Post, they're going to jump to the defense of drug companies saying this is really expensive. They're investing a lot in research, which is not true. I mean, I've seen those same comments on you know my Facebook feed, right. unfortunately. And Martin Shkreli has made his Twitter feed private, but I took some screenshots and 
and basically I, I did a, a, a very in-depth analysis and it turns out that you can break down his tweets into three categories. Tweets about how rich he is, tweets in which he compares himself to rapper Eminem and Wu-Tang, and retweets of other people's tweets which praise him and attack his critics. So one of my favorite ones that he has, besides like showing pictures of his helicopter and being on the boat, he says, I'm not the one to F with, hashtag Wu-Tang. And then he, he's a big fan of using Eminem. So he said, and it seems like the media immediately points a finger at me. So I point one back at, at him, but not the index or pinky. And then he links to the Eminem lyrics to the song, The Way I Am. Seems like the media immediately points a finger at me. So I point one back at him, but not the index or pinky or the ring or the thumb. It's the one you put up when you don't give up. Which has some really great lyrics like, I'm not Mr. Friendly. I can be a expletive that starts with P and ends with K. If you tick me, my tank is on empty. No patience is in me. And if you offend me, I'm lifting you 10 feet in the air. I don't care who was there. So he's very remor he's very he's a humanist is what he is. Oh, clearly. Yeah. I think that's that's exactly the right term. Can you contrast this with like the the polio vaccine and the history of that? Sure. So Jonas Salk, who's the researcher who developed the polio vaccine, which was just life changing for, you know, the entire world. He was asked by a reporter Who owns the patent on this vaccine? And he said Well the people I I would say there is no patent. This is could you patent the sun? <laughs> he understood how life-saving this would be, and he didn't want to restrict that for anyone. Right. Well, so now Martin is lowering the price, which doesn't really make sense if it was going to help the medicine, but right. somehow he's responding to Shocking. the PR. Brian Collinsworth, thank you so much for joining us. Where Absolutely. can people find you online? On Twitter, at BB Collinsworth. Great. This is the Katie Halper Show. Don't go anywhere because we're having our final guest live in studio, Rodrigo Hardon, who's a documentary photographer. In from Mexico City. He is in town for a really exciting exhibit. It's called Unheard Voices, and it's presented by Cowbird. And they're having an event on Friday at Union Docks. At 322 Union Avenue in Brooklyn. And it's 7 p.m. Can you tell us a bit about what your project is that is being highlighted in this exhibit and that you got this grant for? Well, yeah, the the project, it's called uh, Voices from the Mixtec Highlands, and uh, it was funded by the Cowbird and Heart Voices grant. Uh, so the idea was to uh, to give money to someone from my community. It's hard to, to find stories from that place. This, this place is in Oaxaca in Mexico, and it's in the mountains, and it's one of the places where uh, many illegal immigrants come to work in the United States because it's a really poor place. And what made you go there in the first place? My relationship with that community is uh, that my grandmother on my mother's side uh, is from there. So she went uh, to Mexico City when she was a teenager to work. And uh, so it's like also this migrant thing that it's uh, there all the time, you know? And what was the most surprising thing that you saw when you were there? I mean, you've done a lot of documentary photography. You've been to the West Bank, uh, Kurdistan. I went to Arkansas. Arkansas, <laughs> uh, Narrowsburg, New York. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was different about this this place? My connection, you know, like it, it's the first time I work with some, with something that has a lot to do with me, and uh, so I had a lot of chance to, you know, be in, in traditions. They gave me um, two thousand five hundred bucks, which here it may seem just like a, something you can spend on a month, but in Mexico, in the right. <laughs> poor community, it's like. Uh, uh, like a lot of money. So I bought uh, computers for kids to, to write their stories and they gave them cameras.
to take photos of you know how, how they live it's mostly about the people who stays uh, there and have like this life that it's really influenced by uh, what happens in the United States and uh, you know the the people uh, like their families like I, I like oh my mom gets the money from uh, my dad, but I haven't seen him in, you know, 20 years right. or stuff like that. People can see this online, RodrigoHardon.com. But if you could just describe some of the most memorable images. The ones that the children cap capture, uh, I haven't uh, put them online yet. Okay. They, they're still working on that. Uh, but the texts, I, I, they are online on Cowbird, which is the website, Cowbird.com. Cowbird.com, as in cow and bird, Cowbird.com. Exactly. Uh -huh. yeah, which I don't know. Where, Where it, it comes from, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a yeah. Mexican fable yeah. or something. Right. But for me, it was like, uh, you know, like there is this part, that, this native indigenous part of my family that I, I didn't know. I, I mean, I've seen them like a couple of times in my life. Uh, because my mom, it, you know, it's a really, it's a place with a lot of problems like ma machoism. And, machismo, uh, yeah. Machismo. We've and, that uh, even here. And alco alcoholism and stuff like that. So my mom never really uh, got me to that place. On only like you know for holidays and stuff like that. Right. So I I, w I actually attended to a funeral of one of my uncles, my mom mom's uh, half brother. Wow. So that was like really shocking. Uh, this is like the first time I I've, I've been like in something like that. And what do you say to people when they say, "Oh, these indigenous people, they're a bunch of alcoholics." Well, those communities have been like suppressed for ages, you know, like before the Spaniards came to Mexico, they, they were like in this theocratical system and then the Spaniards and, and nowadays like the system that we have in Mexico. We hear that argument with Native Americans here and it's a way, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. clearly there's structural issues. Your exhibit on Friday, it's at Union Docks. At 322 Union Avenue in Brooklyn. And it's 7 p.m.? Yep. Okay, great. So everyone go there and check out RodrigoHardon.com, check out UnionDocs.org, check out Cowbird, and check out Rodrigo's amazing award-winning photographs. Thank you. And see you guys next week on the Katie Halper Show.